Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Mick, how are you, brother? Uh, I'm very well, mate. Thanks for the invite. Great to uh, uh, meet you face to face, so to speak, or as face to face as we can get these days. Yeah, it's um, it is funny, isn't it? I feel like I've met all these amazing people, and then I'm like, hang on, Chris, you haven't actually met them. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's the next uh, best thing, mate. Yeah, I get, I get get people's numbers on my phone just so I can prove, yeah, he, he is my friend. But what an amazing um, life story you've had, mate, and what, and, and as I said to you before, what a great example you set to our young people with your adventures, um, which we will come on to, adventures in the, in the, ocean rowing capacity I'll, I'll say for people that aren't aware of your story but can we go back Mick to your Royal Marines days uh yeah if I can if I can remember far enough back mate yeah <laughs> just just make it up <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah what made you want to join the Corps uh well it was a last minute changed slightly because all I can ever remember is wanting to join the Navy. My family had a connection with the Navy, the Royal Navy, so I was going to go in and, God forbid, become a Matlow. Um, but fortunately, my brother joined the, the Corps uh, the year I was leaving school. Uh, my last year at school, <clears throat> all the paraphernalia from that started to come through the letterbox and uh, that just fortunately deflected me still to the Navy, just, just to the best part of it. So, um, yeah, not Strictly speaking, plan, but definitely a, a good move. Almost everybody I speak to, mate, got into the Corps by some sort of accident. It wasn't their <laughs> first. I meet so many people, a lot of the Special Forces guys, that we all tried to join the RAF, but they, they wouldn't have us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, and, and how was it in, in the Falklands? You were 17. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was, I was lucky and unlucky, I think, in the same uh, in the same breath, in the fact that as soon as I, pretty much almost as soon as we passed out, I joined in 80, and in 82 we were on our way to the Falklands. Um, I was fortunate that I was just over 17 and a half, and at that stage you could go on operational deployment over the Northern Ireland um, at that age. Uh, subsequent, I think after the first uh, Gulf War, they raised it to 18, um, but if I'd have been in the core and kept away because of my age at that point, I think that would have been the, like, the biggest disappointment of my life. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Um, must have been hard for the guys that missed the comp. I mean, it's yeah. probably a bit of both, isn't it? On the one hand, it's there by the grace of God, because if, if they had gone, they might not have come back. Um, but on the other hand, you do all that training and you don't really want to miss the boat, do you? No, I don't know anybody who, uh, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they couldn't go. My brother was in deployment in Hong Kong. And he, he, they, at one stage, they were the closest people of the Falklands uh, when it was all kicking off, and then they wouldn't let him go because they had a job to do there. And I think that pretty much soured his whole career, if, if you know. 
to put words into his mouth, but I know he very much regrets the fact that he didn't get to go at the Falklands. Mm. And how did you get down there? Um, I went down, I was in air defence troop at that stage, and we went down initially, it's quite a chaotic deployment, although organised chaos as it always is with the, the Navy and the Corps. Uh, we went to Pompey and I was on fearless to start with and then cross-decked onto the Lancelot, one of the RFAs at the time. Uh, I seem to remember the slowest one. It went at about 12 knots, slowest ship in the fleet, and it uh, its steamers didn't work, so we had to shower during about a one-hour period every day on the way down. So, And it was flat bottom just to make it nice, nice and comfortable on the South Atlantic. What, um, sorry, yeah, what, what, what was the name of it, Mick? The RFA Salantelot. Salantelot, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's all, all the all the uh, support ships, the, the troop ships, were basically knights of the round table uh, at that time. Right? They've, they've moved on since my day. Um, but yeah, and then we we uh, stopped at Ascension Islands to rejig all the kit and all the personnel. And to be honest, up until that point, I don't think anybody thought we was actually going to go any further. Uh, certainly it wouldn't get to that stage, but uh, then then we went from there. Sheffield was sunk and that was it. Then really everybody knew what was going on. Mm. And was Air Defence based at Stonehouse back then? Yeah, I think they've only just moved. Um, spoke to Still very much in touch with those guys and the new uh, batch of Air Defenders, actually. Um, and I think they've got a 4-2 now, um, but they were just... It only just formed. I joined just after they formed up in about 1980, I think. And uh, yeah, there was always at Stonehouse. So yeah, brilliant, brilliant group of blokes. Real, uh, really good troop. What was it like in that old barracks? I mean, it's a big old kind of built by built by French prisoners of war, wasn't it? I think Stonehouse. Yeah, um, yeah I think some of them were still there. What? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, there's a few ghosts and a few skeletons. They used to say they chuck the, when the people died building it, they chucked them inside the walls, wasn't it? I wouldn't be all surprised. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It was almost. It was very old school. The guys, it's a senior troop, which made it quite good and quite bad at the same thing for like really young guys. I was 17 when I joined there, and um, but a lot of experience and a lot of uh, uh, a lot of ability. So it was. It, it was good. I mean, by you know, the, the pros far outweigh the cons. Yeah. What about? Um, I'm trying to think of the buzz that in that barracks because it's a big parade square, isn't it? How was it? Everybody getting ready to go to war. Oh well, we'd literally just come back from a Norway deployment, so we literally stepped ashore from Norway, waiting to go on Easter leave, and uh, as the Invasion actually progressed because first of all there was a threat, and then people—I think it was South Georgia—they landed first, and then the actual uh, attack on Stanley. Um, at that point, we had a, we had a section of our guys who were going to be parachuted into the Falklands to provide air defence to get extra uh, extra support in there. And then, of course, as soon as the invasion took place and the guys were overwhelmed, um, then it all became a—you know—it was. The task force, the task force. As I remember it, it there was didn't, didn't have been any question. It seemed to happen straight away, but I'm sure politically it wasn't quite like that. Um, but within days of coming back from Norway, um, we were packing, repacking the kit to go uh, to go to the Falklands. Probably not a bad training ground, Norway, for the for the temperatures you faced in the South Atlantic. 
Uh, the temperatures, yeah, but not the weather. Uh, I don't remember horizontal rain that often in, <laughs> in Norway. Um, and I don't remember four seasons in a day quite as regular as it was in the Falklands. But, uh, yeah, but you're right. It was it was good to have some proper cold weather training under a under a belt before that. How much time did you spend ashore when you were down there? Uh, I got ashore. My ship was actually hit uh, two days after the landings. We were waiting to get ashore. We were stuck on the ship basically because we had kit to get ashore, and uh, we ended up being, we were on the landslot. It ended up being the first troop ship. I believe I'm right in saying that the first troop ship to be hit. Um, up until then. The Royal Naval was getting hammered. Their ships were getting hit pretty much every day. Uh, fortunately, um, the bombs that were hitting them weren't going off because these pilots were coming in so low and so fast to avoid getting taken out. They weren't fusing. And the bombs, that, or I think we had one 1,000 bomb inside the ship. It didn't go off. Gosh. So we, uh, yeah. yeah. So we quite lucky. I don't buy, I don't buy lottery tickets anymore after that. <laughs> Did you? Um, can you give us an example of the sort of ac action you you saw? Well, in truth, really, um, after that, because we had to abandon ship and I lost most of my kit, operationally that was pretty much the end of me. Um, although we were at the you know at the the front of it all, so to speak, we weren't part of the uh, the attacks uh, over the mountains. And if I'm honest, that has lived with me to this day. That you know, quite early on operationally we weren't in it anymore we still nearly killed on occasions we you know we had uh, incidents but i didn't feel like i actually um uh, contributed much other than being there after that <clears throat> and uh yeah so uh, yeah i was lucky to get away with that early that early you know situation where we were we were hit but after that i um i, I think i've guilt such a strong word to use but i've always felt i've had to justify myself the fact that i didn't contribute much after that gosh i think the fact that you were down there as part of the task force mate is just <laughs> that's enough in itself you know i mean i get it obviously being a bootneck i i i i i get that but um yeah i just think in in I think had you not gone down there, that that would that, oh, yeah. that would yeah. have been a, a, another bigger thing again. Did you did you suffer any after effects of the war? Any sort of trauma? Um, no, I don't think I did. I think everybody everybody is a result of their experiences. So you <clears throat> so you are a product of those experiences. Whether you go to war, whether you're a fireman, whether you're you know, a plumber. Um, that's that, there's all these things have an effect on how you cope with them. But I, um, I would say largely, I come back with positive um, uh, results from that experience. It shouldn't have happened. It was a war that should have been avoided, like most of them are. And I wish it hadn't happened. But if it did happen, or if it did have to happen, I'm glad I went because I think I come back a better person for that experience in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, which hopefully kind of makes up for the fact that a lot of the guys didn't come back um, and i'll say that on both sides you know it's it's a tragedy to families on both sides for the people who don't come back oh it's very brave of you to to say that mate you know i think our young people need to hear to hear this sort of thing and did you do any tours over the water i didn't 
No, we were uh, talking about doing one or prepping for one uh, when that came up, and then when we came back from um, uh, we came back from the Falklands, one thing we discovered was that most of our ships don't work if you hit them in certain parts. All the all the systems break down, so they wanted an independent air defence system on the back of the um, the ships. Then patrolling the Gulf when when Iraq was our friends and Iran was the enemy and they were scrapping, and so I spent about four years doing tours out there um, on what was then called the Armilla Patrol, which is fantastic because it was operational and it was full of really good runs ashore in Mombasa and Seychelles and stuff like that. It was the best of both worlds, working hard and playing hard. Mm. What uh, what was your favourite run ashore in Gaz in in Plymouth? That is in Plymouth. Uh, well, the Crown used to be the, the troop pub. I don't know if you remember the, the Crown. It became the J.J. Moore after the Falklands. And I think it's <laughs> some sort of church now. Is that the one almost at the bottom of Union Street on the left? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of took it away slightly off to the left. Yeah. What, yeah. what was the Moore one? Was it Admiral Moore it became? Or something? No, no, the, the J.J. Moore. That was, the Crown yeah. became the J.J. Moore, yeah. They renamed it after the Falklands. It had... Tons of uh, memorabilia in there. But, I mean, that's years ago now. I went back not too many years ago, and it's not quite like, well, Union Street doesn't exist anymore, does it? So. It's it's a shame in a way, all that kind of cultural <laughs> aspect is all gone. I mean, the fighting, it's not a shame that's gone because that was getting <laughs> really vicious at times, you know. I mean, yeah. God, everyone was mucking in down there for a scrap and... and uh, but yeah, it is. It is funny to drive down there on a Saturday night now, and it's virtually there's nothing. You know, it's just another street in in. There's a few places that still spark it's, down yeah, there. It was it was an incredible place in it in its, in its time. It was an incredible place. But mm. everything has its time. Time moves on, doesn't it? You know, everybody looks back to how it was. But uh, and where were you in Norway? Uh, we'd just been to where we've we been to uh, Narvik. We were up in Narvik, we were attached to 4-5. Uh, so we were at a place called Basefjord, um, which is just near, well, near Narvik, right up in the north. So uh, the first, I mean, before the Falklands, I'd gone up and done my uh, Arctic warfare training, which I think may have been somewhere near Lillehammer. I can't remember that now, but, but uh, yeah, but we were up north after that. Is, it, is that where all the buses and all the nurses come from? Narvik, isn't it? The, the busload of nurses from Narvik. Was it forty years ago? I'm still waiting for that to turn up. <laughs> if you ever, if you ever want, not 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 that I ever do check any Marines' identity. I'm not really that bothered. But if you ever did want to, <laughs> yeah. you just ask them who arrives on the bus from Narvik. And I think <laughs> every, I think even in 1664, they knew the <laughs> they yeah. knew the answer yeah. to that. <laughs> Did you get in, uh, of, aside from our obvious maritime connection, did you get into the sea in the way that you, you, you have in recent years what, while you were in the Corps? Uh, yeah, I think, like I say, all I ever wanted to do was join the Navy and go to sea. And I come from Boston, which, believe it or not, is a small port. And as a kid, I remember, I remember going to the docks. In days, you could just walk around the dock to go on the ships. I mean, my dad ran a pub, so he'd take us onto the ships to look around. So all I ever wanted to do was go to sea. And quite fortunately, really, especially with Falklands, a lot of my time in the Corps was spent uh, on the water. 
Um, even the Armilla Patrol, it was naval patrol. So we were on destroyers, frigates and support ships uh, do, doing that job. So I spent a lot of time at sea and I learned to sail as well. The Navy taught me to sail, uh, you know, for what I did when I left. Is, you know, they taught me to sail a boat properly. Um, so, uh, yeah, it just, you know, I got the best of both worlds. I got, I got to be a, a bootneck matlow. <laughs> Yeah, I was the same. I was I, I was on an aircraft carrier for a year, which is just amazing. One of the probably one of the best years of my life, and um, I hold the dubious claim of being a what is it? A, I've got a, a, a powerboat license, <laughs> right? Which sounds really grand, but it's just a, I think it was a two day course we did at Stonehouse down at the. Yeah, yeah. Down at the hard, they call it. It's the little harbour bit. Yeah. And um, there was one question on that course, Mick. The the instructor said, he said, how can you tell in the morning when you wake up if you've dragged your anchor, right? And I thought yeah. about it and went, well, you you drop a boy in the night before on a, on another anchor. And he went, who told you that? <laughs> I said, well, it's just obvious. He went, it, in the 20 years I've been running this course, no one has ever answered. <laughs> so basically, I'm brilliant. Um, yeah, you've yeah. got a lot of anchors on your boat as well. <laughs> yeah, it didn't, it didn't <laughs> mention whether you have to lift it back up again, you know, put it back <laughs> up again. <laughs> yeah, so... Did you do much sailing in the traditional sense then? Yeah, I started to. I, to be honest, I left after, uh, well, it was a nine-year contract, but 11 years because, you know, what they used to call girls' time, the first two years didn't count. Um, and at that point, I had the option to go and uh, work at the, the, the sailing school, but I was so keen to get out. I don't mean that in a bad way, that I knew that if I went there, I'd stay in and then I'd probably end up doing my 22. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, you know, I'd had a brilliant time. I loved my time in the court, but I needed to, you know, go on to the next thing. And I was conscious if I, if I did that and it would encourage, I wouldn't have thought much encouraging to stay in. And that would have probably done it. So I deliberately stepped away from it and went into Civic Street where all those things cost me thousands of pounds to do yeah. for the next few years. Did you ever meet Cameron March? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cameron was the sound major for um, Steve Grenham in the, in the Falklands. Yeah. And I met him quite recently. Well, say recently, three or four years ago now during stuff we've done with Cockle Shell Endeavour because he obviously is connected with the Royal Marines charity. Yeah. Yeah, he was my, my best mate's dad. So, uh, yeah. God, there's, there's a lot, lot <laughs> there's a lot we could talk about there, just about the, the whole Falklands thing and, and his involvement, um, his involvement in it. He, for people listening, Cameron was the guy who, on national television, when they sailed back from the Falklands, um, he came out with that classic line, I took down boys, I brought back men. Uh, yeah. Yeah. God, get a bit emotional just, just thinking about that. So when you were in Civvy Street, was it, was it a sailing 
a lot of sailing before the rowing or, or did the rowing? Yeah, well, to cut a long story short, I eventually went into um, the private yachting industry and ended up in, got you know, I mean, good jobs and everything on luxury yachts in Monte Carlo and America and all the rest of it and uh, largely hated every minute of it. I was now surrounded by people I had absolutely nothing in common with. And I don't mean the people I worked for. I mean the people I was working with, the crews and everything. Um, and not that for a while, I really struggled to cope with how they weren't all normal. And it took a few years to realise actually I wasn't normal. And I was the odd one out. And I needed something um, that was more suited to me. And, uh, and I found it with the rowing really uh, by chance but i knew i needed to find something that brought out all the uh, all the challenges and all the values that i've learned in the core really. and so how did the rowing come around <laughs> i was in uh, via reggio on a yacht helping a mate actually at the time he was refitting his boat and we were shifting it across to <clears throat> to america and i was reading a magazine on a sunday off in a very luxurious uh, toilet on a very luxurious yacht. And there was a mag uh, it was FHM, I think. And there was a series of um, ultra races that you could take part in. And at this stage, I, I, convinced, well, I decided I was going to climb Everest. I read the book Everest uh, about the 96th year when the most people died. Mm. Like tragedy, but inspirational. I thought, right, I can, three years, I've got the disposable income and I. I can learn to do that, and that was achievable. And then I opened this magazine up, and on one of the pages was the first ever Atlantic rowing race. And I thought, well, I can do that now. You know, I've just got to build a boat and do that. So uh, um, it was as simple as that. It was like a, a light switching on moment and uh, rang my brother up because you have to have a partner. Well, you have to have a partner then. And uh, didn't get him, got his wife, and she and she said, what, what is it? I said, oh, tell him I've, I've booked us into a race across the Atlantic and that the kit will be arriving at his house soon because obviously I didn't have an address. She laughed and then stopped laughing and realised I was serious, and that was the end of it. Yeah. But I know yeah, he's an ex-bootneck or former bootneck by that stage. I know he'd be up for it, and he, and he was. So you did it as a, a, du a duo, a partnership? Yeah, we took part in the second Atlantic Ryan race from... Tenerife to Barbados, <coughs> uh, and they were all all doubles. Then you couldn't write solo, not in the race anyway. So uh, I think thirty-two boats took part in that race. Did you win? Oh no, it was it was farcical. Uh, the whole race was so poorly organised at the start. We got there and they they'd arranged to start from Los Giantes, but they'd forgot to ask the person who runs Los Giantes Marina. Uh, who we got to know really well. Um, and he was very surprised to hear there's 32 boats coming to his marina um, when he said, I've got no berths. I haven't got berths for two boats, let alone 32. Uh, we had to rebuild the boat on the quayside because they, uh, there's a rule about uh, the keel that they applied to us uh, and two other boats. And we literally put our boat into the water for the first time in salt water 15 minutes before the start of the race. <laughs> True, no cough too tough style. <laughs> prior planning and preparation prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> yeah, annoyingly, we planned pretty well, but we hadn't planned for them just walking in and saying that needs to be changed or you're disqualified. Um, and having not arranged a start line, we were quite even far. 
I don't think there's any great expeditions taking place without having to go to a, a, pla- a plan B, is it? Oh, no. no. And I'll be honest, it, it is the biggest favour, or certainly for me long term, because it changed it. I mean, there's a lot of people now, you've probably seen the Atlantic Rail races that take place, the boats, are, the designs are changing, and then they're going across almost as fast as sailing boats. And that wouldn't have done me any favours for the stuff that I went off and did on the North Pacific. I didn't need to get across the Atlantic in 32 days or whatever it is now. I needed to know what like a lengthy period of time at sea was and, and deal with different weather systems. So uh, it might not have been what I wanted, but it, I got what I needed, really. Yeah, well, we'll come on and talk about the Pacific, which is just, it's daunting even saying that word. Um <laughs> So you you built your own boat for this first Atlantic. Yeah, basically that that race you got a flat pack kit and you you built it. We we I mean we say we built it. We had the first stage of it put together. I wasn't even in the country then uh, by a boat builder, and then we refitted it, fitted it out with all the kit we'd need. Um, you know, painted it and everything. So um, yeah, it, it was. I mean, a great boat, but it was built like a tank. It was um, compared to you know the later boat I'd have and the boats that are built now, um, but it was built to survive, So, um, which is never a bad idea when you go to oceans on a rowing boat. <laughs> um, how how does it stand then? Because um, I'm guessing your friends were Lee Spencer. I know Lee, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 We never met, we've spoken a lot. Yeah, he's he got some advice from you. I, I, is that right? Sorry, mate, you've, you froze there for a second. Can ah, you repeat that? Yeah, he's got, I'm assuming he's got some, he got some advice off you. Uh, we spoke a few times. I don't think I've not given him too much advice. I think he had plenty of people around him at that stage who knew, knew what they were doing. And, and ah. he did it himself as well. I mean, he did it in a four-man team. Um, so, you know, he, he's pretty clued up on what he'd need for, for his trip. Yeah, okay. Um what I was wondering is back in the, when you look at the boats now, they almost look as though as long as you stay clipped on, if a wave was to turn you over, you, you, you're not going to drag, you know, the boat's not going to sink. When you first started, was that still the case or were they, were they quite precarious craft? <laughs> um, well, how many times have been, I've been over, uh capsized properly once and recovered capsized once and didn't recover and lost the boat although it still didn't sink um and beam ended half a dozen times so i think they've always been designed to self-right providing a that uh you've got the kit stowed correctly and the right amount of kit and it's in the right place very easy to change that if you're not careful on the way over as you start to eat into your rations um believe it or not i very rarely clipped on and i understand that that will come as an anathema to people now but i you know my experience led me to a different conclusion on that although i would always urge anybody else to clip on at all times um as, as hypocritical as that sounds um but yeah I, I i i've been on a boat when it's been capsized or demolished more than capsized and if i'd have been clipped on uh, it would have killed me. Um, as it was, I got separated from the boat but managed to get back to it. But if I'd have been clipped on at that point, then I would not have 
would, I'd, you know, at the very least, I'd have drowned. Mm. My point with that really is there's no absolute. This is not Alton Towers when you go to sea on an ocean rowing boat. You have to take responsibility. My taking responsibility is I've always had my boats in a situation where I can clip on at any point if I feel I need to, and I should do, and I do do. But it's not like I do that, I'm okay, because that's abdicating responsibility. You've got to be thinking all the time that you could die out here. So it's there's no single thing that's going to keep you safe. It's not the it's not the arm on the, the roller coaster coming down and you can just abdicate all responsibility. You have to take responsibility for what you're doing. Yeah, it's that thing, isn't it? We've moved into a, a world now where people will just do the safety thing without actually really thinking it through, which con- contradicts, you know, yeah. not being able to apply your brain in a situation of extreme danger is, is the, the worst thing. And thinking just because you've done this or this or, or whatever it might be that um, it's... Um, yeah. If that safety equipment is allowing you to switch off or become less cautious, it's not necessarily doing you a favour. Um, but like I say, take everything that keeps you safe, but never, you know, never lose sight of your common sense and our best to employ it. Mm. Have you um, done many solo rows then, mate? Two. Two. <laughs> Oddly enough, my least successful road, so that probably tells the story. <laughs> okay. So, and where where were they from? Uh, both the North Pacific. After the first Atlantic crossing with my brother, um, you may or may not remember this, but there was two Marines at that time trying to row from Japan to San Francisco, uh, Tim Welford and Don Lee. Okay, yeah. And they, as we were waiting to leave, they were sunk. They were hit by a fishing boat. Um, literally, like on the home stretch, about 12, 1300 miles from the coast of the US. Um, and we'd followed this trip, and they'd done such an amazing job. From then on, the, the Atlantic became a training run for, for the Pacific. Um, the only difference was after finishing the Atlantic, uh, my brother realized that six months on the Pacific wouldn't be fair to his two young kids. And I didn't have any kids and didn't think anybody could replace my brother, so I went on my own. Gosh. <laughs> Where, where did you leave from? Uh, Choshi, just north of Tokyo, about 70k north of Tokyo. It's on. It's basically the bit of Japan nearest to America. <laughs> wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm. I'm just checking my map. In the Chiba province, I think it is. If I remember rightly. And was that a an an do you said it wasn't successful? How how come? No. no. Well, I went twice. I went in 2003. And basically, I'd a limited budget, fundamental flaw in most projects. Um, so I got there by the skin of my teeth, and then I got stalled in Chochi because it's nothing like crossing the Atlantic. Um, it's literally you're waiting for one weather window to get out, and I was there six weeks with no weather window, and it's too late. I should have just gone back because I was never going to have enough time to get across in the, in the summer. But again, the pressure's on. So I pushed off into it. I got smashed by about three storms, one after the other. And by day 12, I emerged from the last storm. The rudder had torn off. Um, it was still attached, but it had torn off one of the one of the gimbals and it had pulled part of the hull out with it. And, uh, you know, the rudder wasn't, it wasn't going to get me to America, let alone San Francisco. So I rode back into, uh, into Japan. 
You're not making so, excuses there, Mick, are you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, just trying to think if I've used all the excuses up. <laughs> hey, most, you've got to remember, most people would just be terrified getting in, getting in that boat, let alone three storms. But in the North Pacific, you're getting it constantly. You know, that's, that's just the nature of that stretch of water, whether it's summer or winter. <laughs> winter, forget. I mean, the winter's unsurvivable in a Ryan boat. Because I spoke to, to Lee about this and said, how is it being on your own in a storm? And he, he, his reply was it was just utterly terrifying. How, how did you find it? I, I, we, actually, I spoke with Lee about this and we were comparing thoughts. And I really loved being on my own. I, I, I loved every one of my trips I've enjoyed. Maybe not that 12-day one much. But... Um, I loved being on my own and I don't remember ever being my biggest fear on being on my own was being run down by ships and on the North Pacific. That's a massive problem. It certainly was them with kit that didn't flash you up on their radar reliably. Um, but the storms and that, I'll be quite frank. I was glad to get in the cabin and get some sleep. You, you constantly run into exhaustion and uh, yeah, no, I, I loved it. I mean, it's like being in the mountains when a storm rolls over you. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's intimidating and scary, but it's, it's also fantastic to know that that's your storm. Nobody else is seeing it. Mm. And do you, do you have moments of terror or do you just take, it sounds like you take it all in your stride. Uh, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I'd love to think I did. Um, the collision problem, that was, that was a thing that, like a bone numbingly stomach sickening fear that was because when I went back for the second solo attempt, uh, I was at sea 109 days on that. And I was literally, I rode from under the bows of container ships on four times, four occasions. And I'm talking 40, 50 yards in front of these huge ships that are doing like 20 knots and they don't even know you're there. And even if they hit you, they're, you know, you're not even going to be a paint mark on the side. And, when it happened, strangely enough, or you know, you'll know what I mean by this. At the time, you just get on with dealing with it. But afterwards, the payback was hideous. You know that, like, what if when you start to imagine what could have happened, and then of course I'd have to go and sleep and on your own. There's nobody out there. There's no hope of anybody else seeing something coming and avoiding it. So that was as frightening a time for me was just that threat of being run down. Mm. Yeah, I'm quite glad I haven't experienced that. <laughs> Maybe in the future. Um, a kit now, mate. I can see you. <laughs> yeah, well, there's been a lot. Of, I guess there must have been loads of innovations from when you first started rowing to, to modern day. Oh, yeah, 20, well, it's hard to believe, but it's 20 years now and the, the boats are completely different. Mm. Do you uh, do you take alcohol when you do these things? No, no. I um, I've never taken alcohol on a trip until the very last one two years ago, when we were given port uh, to to host various parts of the trip. But uh, now we we all thought, well, when I went on my own, or whatever, we thought having alcohol on the boat would encourage you not to get to the other side as quick as you might if, you, if you're looking forward to getting to the pub mm. and to be honest the last thing you want on an ocean rowing boat is uh, 
is is beer or alcohol. You, you it's sleep or work. Mm. And what kind of rations do you eat? Well, again, they've evolved. <clears throat> Our first rations were god ludicrous compared to what they are now. But now, probably not dissimilar to the military ration packs. Now it's all ball in a bag, uh, high calorific value, easy to pack, um, uh, good food. Quite frankly, it's not. You know, I, I enjoyed the food on most of our trips. I think the the successful North Pacific trip in two thousand and nine. Some of the menu choices on that were a bit gopping. Um, spaghetti bolognese was the least favourite. I seem to remember. Even starving to death and not wanting to eat that was an indication of how bad that particular menu choice was. But, but yeah, generally, generally really good. But it's fuel. Yeah. Uh, it's just fuel to get you through the day. Was it sort of tins back in the old days? Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, we had some tins on the first trip. And I, I've taken tins since for little treats and that, uh, but not many. Um, but uh, it was just, you were just getting to the point of uh, expedition-type rations in 2001. But yeah, there was a lot. I mean, there's boats there literally loading up with tins. I mean, the race before us... And have water makers you know they took berry cans with water and you know hope they'd have enough to get across it's the the food the weight of the food must be a part of your ballast right i'm guessing you've got to factor all that in yeah yeah i mean on the races they'll uh they'll make you carry a certain amount of emergency ballast in in the form of fresh water and then as you get into any race or any expedition, you're going to be eating into those rations. And what I always did was I'd take lots of industrial bin bags, A, to keep hold of the gash, so you're not throwing it over the side, and B, when the big stuff come on the North Pacific, which was pretty much every 10 or 14 days, ballast the boat down if it needed it, you know, put some extra weight into it. And then you can get rid of that to a certain degree <clears throat> on the better days so that you can row more efficiently. It's interesting you say that because all of the British Navy's gash ru rubbish goes over the bloody side. It's it's criminal. Yeah, I, I can't. Do they still do that? I can't believe they do anymore. Well, they they certainly did it back in ninety one. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I always figured when you got out of like British waters and they say you you can now ditch gash, that's where they worked out where the tide would take it to front. <laughs> you took the words out of my, my mouth. <laughs> it wouldn't matter now. You wouldn't even notice if it washed up on our beaches as the, the state people are leaving them in. I want to come on to it. I'm going to put, just make a note here. I want to ask you about your routine. But before I do that, um, has anybody to this day rowed solo across the Pacific? Um. The, the, there's two North Pacific crossings prior to mine and Chris's that were done by solos. Um, Emmanuel, a French guy, and or two French guys, and uh, oh, Gerard D'Aberville, I think his name is. Um, and they were basically set off from Chochi and were pushed north and were both towed in. I'm not decrying that in any way, but what we were setting out to do was to become the first boat to navigate from Japan to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. That was, wasn't a matter of hitting America. 
and it was a matter of getting there under our own steam and that was our finishing line to get to the, the Golden Gate Bridge and nobody had done that before and we did it what, 11 years ago and nobody's come close to doing it since. Did you say they got towed in? Yeah, I think uh, Gerard was in a hurricane. He was like, it was November, the end of November before he got to the American coast and he was over somewhere, I think he was up near Portland um, on the West Coast um, and this film of him in this in this hurricane um, and he, he survived that but uh, was, was taken in. Uh, Emmanuel, I'm not sure what happened with his, but uh, but yeah, it was it's the North Pacific's attritional. It stops you pretty much the whole way. Whereas the Atlantic Rhine race is a trade winds route, so you're going to get assistance from the conditions on a general basis, not always, and it's still bloody hard. Yeah, but the North the North Pacific, it's you know to the 188 days into our trip, I was still thinking it was impossible. And we got in the next day and it was still, I'm not sure this is possible. Um, it was incredible. Totally, yeah, it so was totally different. Are we saying then that nobody's done that solo so far? No one's done it solo or in any other boat. No one except me and Chris Martin have ever rowed from Choshi to the Golden Gate Bridge. In oh, congratulations, mate. That's an amazing. Amazing. That just, mean, that just means nobody else is stupid enough to try. <laughs> well, the reason I'm, I'm asking is um, Kale Royce is a friend of mine. Um, yeah. Very dear, very dear man. Uh, is he going lost, ne- he's going next year, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. For our friends at home, Kale, um, former soldier, lost both of his legs in uh, Afghanistan. And he's a remarkable ocean skipper, you know, for the for the for the rowing that that we're talking about. And I think he's is it twice he's crossed the Atlantic. Yeah. And now he's considering. Well, now he's planning for the Pacific um, and the Atlantic. He's he's going to do both west to east across the Pacific and Atlantic, isn't it? If I'm ah. not mistaken. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to have to get Kale on the show because he's 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 a He's a really good guy, and um, he's very hum- humble as well. You know, he, he's quite quite unassuming. But um, I'll have to get him on the sh- on the show and, and ask him. I haven't seen him for for quite some time. So, well, congratulations! And the chap that your the, the your rowing partner was this the blind person? No, no, no. This was this was back in two thousand nine. It's Chris Martin. Um, I'd basically, my my rowing career, for want of a better phrase, I rowed the Atlantic in 2001. 2003 went to the Pacific solo and crashed and burned in 12 days. Went back, sorted the boat out, basically learned the lessons I needed, to, you know, the difference on the North Pacific. Went back the following year and got to almost pretty much the same place as uh, the two Marines who were hit, and I sank. Uh, 109 days into that trip, I capsized and um, trapped in the cabin. Basically, the boat, although it was still afloat, was up, upside down. So I went back to build another boat after surviving that uh, with a view to going back. Um, but I ended up rowing the Atlantic again on stake or at the last minute sort of standing. And during that race, I met Chris Martin and realised two of us would be more likely to be successful getting a boat into San Francisco than one. So uh, that's what happened. And 
when you capsized, how did you get rescued? <laughs> God, it's a nightmare. Um, well, it was, it, you know, the trip I was telling you were the four occasions I rode out from under the bows of ships. Well, I probably, and I don't know to this day, I'm not sure, but I was probably finally close enough to one of these ships to get rolled by its bow wave because <clears throat> that was a like it's just a constant problem on that trip. I mean, there'd be weeks without it, and then I'd be looking at a container ship 30 yards away. It's nightmarish. Um, but I'd gone into the cabin in flat down conditions to get a camera to film it raining outside because uh, when it, you know, it, it comes like a moonscape out there, and I wanted to get. Know, the difference from the normal sort of setting and while i was in the cabin getting the camera ready the boat just got rolled onto its roof um i'd close the hatch behind me but unfortunately i'd closed the hatch on the first clip so it wasn't watertight it went onto the roof it was hemorrhaging water into the cabin and i shut it off but enough had got in as the boat rolled completely over um it wasn't an impact as such it was it was, it was wave action, but it was, you know, I'd say probably a bow wave. Um, it came round to the point where she was you know, she was designed to do. She would sit upright and she stalled. And I was inside like an agitated hamster trying to get it to go that last 10 degrees to pop back up. And she didn't. She hung there for what it seemed like forever, but, you know, probably just a couple of seconds and then dropped down on the, on the, on the starboard side. And the only way to get that boat upright was for me to be outside uh, front hatch was half underwater, back hatch was completely underwater. As soon as I opened one to get out, the boat would flood and um, it would still float because it had seal compartments, but, uh, you know, it would be completely uh, turned turtle. And you'd be in the water, <laughs> of course. Outside. Yeah. yeah. Well, eventually I was, yeah. How how long did you have... To, was your radio okay then? No. No, that, that was the other slight complication. I'd lost comms on that trip from A12 so I had no satellite communication I had a VHF not that I was any use in that situation but I had a VHF but no comms but I had an EPUB you know the uh, like an SOS beacon uh, and uh, but that was inside with me unfortunately I had more safety kit in there as well so I got I was in the best condition I could be in in that situation with dry suit on warm clothes flares um, just I got the most amazing footage on that trip. I mean, I had about 60 or 70 floating cartons with all manner of species of whales. I'd been adopted by a pod of killer whales. I mean, I had all this footage, and that was all tucked away in a waterproof uh, bag. Um, but like I say, I was trapped in the cabin. And this just this sounds the stuff of absolute nightmares. How, how long were you in the cabin for? Well, I... I activated the beacon, but obviously I had no way of knowing anyone had got that signal. And my concern was, was that signal escaping through the, you know, the cabin walls. And on top of that, the boat was obviously going to eventually go completely inverted. And it, I went over first thing in the morning and it felt, or I estimated it was going to be the following night. It was going to tip over completely and I might have to get out of that cabin at night when it decides rather than when I do. So I combination of that and the fact I wanted to make sure that signal was seeing a satellite I decided to escape the hatch like open the open the hatch flood it and swim out um before it got dark but um so yeah that's that's probably another time when I got quite <laughs> quite, quite anxious 
And and what did a ship arrive to rescue you? Well, oh yes, I I have to say here as well the debt I owe to the Corps because throughout all that uh, situation, um, and I don't say this to be gung ho, I say this to you know illustrate the point. At no point when that happened was I struggling with fear or self-pity or anything like that i automatically went into coping mechanisms and right survival situation i'll get this sorted what's the next thing i need to do just made a new plan didn't start feeling sorry for myself for the fact that i wasn't going to get to san francisco and just got it in my head four days survived for four days somebody will get to me and then of course most important of all when i uh, opened that hatch it was exactly the same as doing dunking drills on a helicopter uh, and i to this day, I would not have got out of that cabin if I hadn't done those drills. Because when that, when I opened that hatch and the water came in, I mean, it's freezing, and the cold water shock hit, and all you want to do is get out. You can't. You have to stay in there till it fills up. Um, you know, it saved my life. There's no question. I'd still be in that cabin. <laughs> Bits of me would still be in that cabin now. So just to clarify, how long were you were you in there before you left in the cabin? I was in there most of the day, so probably about eight or ten hours. Okay. And yeah. silly question, what, you just pee in a container or something? And I don't remember needing to pee. Uh, I probably, in fact, you're told not to for your survival training, aren't you? But, um, I don't remember. No, I, it, that whole period of time in that cabin, and I know it would be memory now, just seemed to go so quickly because I was doing stuff and getting things ready. Um, I didn't even think about it. And I'd... I mean, I eventually was in the water for just shy of 24 hours and I don't remember having a single swamp. <laughs> it's a silly question to ask you. It just came into my, my head, probably along no. with a lo load of questions I don't ask. <laughs> um, I've never asked that before. I love that one. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I was thinking of the other one, the number two, you know, what, what yeah. I'm guessing that, you know, a plastic bag would have come in quite, quite handy. No, in that. Could, couldn't have done it. I was in a dry suit. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Anything was staying in there with me, mate. That's probably yeah. what I didn't know. <laughs> and how, when you got outside into the water, did you clip on in case you fell asleep or something? And No, um, what happened was I eventually got out. I lost all the film, film in the turmoil of getting out, the film bag jammed inside. But I ended up outside with a one-man life raft and the boat. Like it's got sealed compartments, so it was upside down but afloat. I tied the the raft to the back of the boat, um, and I don't know if you've seen a one man life raft, but they're fairly uh, fairly petite and uh, they're, they're okay. But you, you're literally sat in like a tiny paddling pool with a Velcro hood that you pull over your head. So it's on the North Pacific. It's quite insubstantial, but it was all I needed at the time, and uh, and then, then I basically. You know, still thinking, wait for another four days, somebody will get to you. It, and now, obviously, that signal would now more likely to be, be received. And how long was it before before a it, ship came? Amazing. Well, it's a plane that came first. The uh, US Coast Guard did a fantastic job from Kodiak, Alaska. Uh, they got the signal. Believe it or not, the signal went to Falmouth and then went. To, they were dispatched. Um, and they sent an aircraft down to me, and I I heard this the following night, it's pitch black, it's hideous. Pitch black, couldn't see anything. And then I could hear this roaring noise, and I was looking all around thinking I was going to get run over. And then this aircraft came 30 feet above my head, 
um, the ramp down at the back. I could see the guys, I could see the colours of the US Coast Guard colours because there's the nav lights flashing. Um, they were dropping massive flares all around me, lit the whole scene up like something from a movie. I, I had a couple of flares I put down my dry suit, so I fired them off, which is, well, the first one was just like, let them know that I was functioning. The second one was just for me, own morale, because it feels a bit better firing the flare off. Um, and I thought, well, this is, you know, this is going so much better than it. You know, if they're here, then they'll get a ship to me in the next however many hours. And uh, and they did. They redirected a container ship, and I guess probably two, three o'clock in the morning, I saw the nav lights appear. I thought all my problems were over. But they, they weren't. weren't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. Uh, I was as a ship came towards me in the dark I was sat there dressed in everything you're meant to have reflective top whistle torch I had a flare in a in a small life raft that was all you know reflective tape and everything and the ship was drifting by uh, probably no more than four or five knots huge container ship I could see the people I could smell the ship I could hear what they were saying um and they went straight past me. And, uh, I pulled my last flare out to operate that to indicate where I was. It didn't work. Um, it just and off they went, disappeared into the distance. And uh, fortunately, because I had the signal with me, the Coast Guard redirected them. Second time they came back, I was no more than fifteen or twenty yards from the side of this container ship, screaming and shouting, uh, blowing the useless whistle and torch that no one could see and again halfway down the side of the ship uh, they're going to pass me again this guy got a light on to me and we've got you like, great and then he disappeared came back he went we're going too fast we're going to have to turn around and come and get you again and uh, I thought well it's progress unfortunately as I got to the back of this huge ship it had a really angular transom and as I got to the back I was again you know almost next to the ship there was an explosion and this wall of white water came out the back, picked up my rowing boat, dropped it on me and the life raft, shredded the life raft. And as the ship's disappearing into the distance again in the darkness, I'm now treading water for England, um, clambering, clambering onto the upturned wall of my rowing boat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> My viewers are going to love, love listening to this because they're all going to say, how can he be so calm? <laughs> <laughs> I was less less so at the time. Well, I, I have to say, even during it, and again, I'm not just saying this, but the debt I owe to being in the core, I just I just cope with it. I found what do I need to do. You know, as soon as I was in the water and life raft around me, and like one ring was still inflated, the rest was in tatters. Um, and uh, try not to remember that a shark had rubbed itself alongside the boat the night before. <laughs> I thought, get onto the hull of the boat. Um, so, yeah, when it came back, again, it took ages to turn round. Uh, by that stage, I'm sat on the back of the boat, upturned, hanging onto the rudder, uh, freezing cold. And um, the uh, ship came towards me. The only way they could get me close enough to get any, you know, any chance of me getting off was to run me down. So I got run down by this container ship and I was bouncing down the side of it like, some sort of maritime rodeo rider hanging onto the rudder. They're throwing lines down at me and none of them come anywhere near me to start with. And then when one finally came within grabbing distance, I realised I didn't have a loop on it. 
and I couldn't let go with both hands. I was off that boat and gone. And uh, again, you remember this um, long forgotten thing I was taught in the Marines when we were doing cliff assaults. You're pulling yourself up, you get tired, injured, you want to just secure yourself with one-handed bowling. Well, I hadn't done that in 14, 15 years. Within a nanosecond of that line hitting me, I had a one-handed bowling tied around me. Um, and that effectively secured me to the boat and they managed to slow me down enough to get to the to the pilot ladder and uh, jumped off the bottom of my boat onto the pilot ladder and uh, climbed up to a cup of tea and <laughs> um, a, a very big thank you to the crew of the engine Philadelphia who saved me. My gosh. Where did where did you have to stick with the boat then until they got to their destination or did they fly you off or something? Oh no, no, no. You you know, you very much wherever they're going. Fortunately for me, it was Palm Beach. They were heading to America. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did have visions of going to Korea or something, which would have been even more frustrating. But um, uh, you're not really, beggars can't be choosers in that situation. In Palm Beach, though, that's Florida, Florida, isn't no, it? No, no. Um, Long Beach, is it? Sorry. No, Long okay, Beach. Long, Long Beach, California. Yeah. yeah. Where the uh, where the Queen Mary is, the original Queen Mary. Did they give you a scrubbing brush and? <laughs> oh, no, they're fabulous. Yeah, they they uh, they they were just brilliant. Um, you know, I was very conscious of causing all the tassel of it going wrong and me being the centre of uh, that rescue. And, and I even when I was in that boat and it was going wrong, I remember saying to myself, "This isn't going to stop me." You know, Pacific or the North Pacific become very personal to me. It became like a it had its own personality. And I remember saying, you'll have to do better than this to stop me. Mm. But when I got onto that ship and then you start to realise that people have put their lives at risk to rescue you when it's gone wrong. You know, if that crew had ditched in the aircraft that came out to me, something like that, there's a big responsibility. And I had to think long and hard. And when I was on that trip back into, uh, into Long Beach, I was sitting there thinking, um, maybe I shouldn't go back. And the first mate, the first officer came to see me and he said, Mick, um, me and the uh, officers have been talking. We were wondering when you're going back to get this finished. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know about that. It's a big responsibility after all this and everything. And he went, no, no, no. We've been watching you and we all know that you're going to go back and you're going to go and finish it. Mm. Uh, and for me, the fact that the people who've put their lives at risk were positive about it was a turning point allowed me to think about going back you know that's been a recurring thing recently um with people criticizing adventurers using that kind of let's just call it a cliche line oh they're putting other people's um Good friend of mine, Matt Disney, yeah, uh, attempted yeah, attempted to carry his <clears throat> row machine to the top of Mont Blanc, and then he was going to row the height of the mountain. And he he's done this very successfully on a number of occasions, raised an enormous amount of money for charity, improved people's mental health. You know, who've been suffering um, in, immeasurably by setting this amazing example of of endurance and mindset, right? Because he had to leave the rower in a in a in a shelter to when he got to the top of the mountain in in the name of safety, so he was being yeah. safe, right? 
oh my god the 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 french mayor and the press just tried to slaughter him right you know the guy done nothing nothing wrong and then of course you're getting people on social media oh he how thoughtless he didn't yeah you know putting people's like rescue people's lives and it's well there's so many other sides to that blooming coin other than the play it safe let's all just play everything safe. you know let's not bother driving cars anymore because that's too dangerous let's let's not walk down the stairs in the morning because that's do you know what i mean it's I know exactly what you mean, mate. Yeah. The message, the example that that sets for, for our young people, that, you, you know, they're all going to get to 80 years old and look back at their lives and think, oh, my God, I played it really safe all my life, didn't I? Because I listened to the media. Um, yeah. So, no, you don't have to feel in any way responsible for that, Mick. You're, you're setting an amazing example, you know, and... and um, it's the stuff stuff of it's the stuff of legend. Just guys doing what you do makes my life feel better, you know. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, I look back and I was fortunate when I grew up, effectively as a school kid through the seventies. All my heroes did something. It was your Shea Blyers, your Knox Johnsons, uh, Francesca Chichester. I knew I'd stumble on that. These people all did something, and I wanted to be like them. Whereas they, that role now, I think, has been hijacked by celebrities. And what people are aspiring to now is a, a way of life, uh, the, the things that that way of life will give you, rather than actually just being good at something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being good at sailing around the world equates to being good if you're a carpenter, if that's your passion or something like that. But just wanting to be rich has not got the same value. And I grew up watching people... You know, row oceans, as Jay Bly did the first modern ocean row with Ridgeway, sail around the world, it made the world a more colourful place. I don't want to grow up. I don't want kids to grow up in a bland world. I want them to grow up in a colourful world where they're trying to climb mountains and, and row their own oceans. And, and I, that's my argument against the, there's a risk if you do this. You know, there's a risk going to work on the, you know, on the on the bus every morning, as we know now. More than, you know, the risks come when you're least expecting them. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're aware, but I ran the length of the country in 2018, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, he, here's the thing. I just did it for me. That's all. I, yeah. I wanted to spend a bit of time on my own. My missus is awful, Mick, right? Anything to get away from... <laughs> I've I was got, waiting for you to qualify that. I've, <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm so lucky that I've got the best partner in the world. And she says, Chris, go, go. Whereas mo- most of the adults I know, no disrespect, they yeah. have to ask permission to live their lives. And very often it's, uh, no, you're not doing that. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to give specific examples because people will know who I'm talking about. But and I always say you don't. You're not living life until you get a partner that supports you in everything you do because she knows you need to do it, right? So when I said, um, yeah, I want to, you know, take five or six thousand pounds of our savings, buy some lightweight kit and, you know, 
get a plane ticket and run the length of the country she said yeah okay yeah i think you should you know but um it there wasn't it was nothing to do with any celebrity i didn't it never occurred to me that i wouldn't do it i didn't even really see it as a challenge i i was just looking forward to running along with my camping gear finding yeah. a be- beautiful place every evening and sitting down getting the cooker on and you know think then sleeping in my tent and that was it. Uh, you know, I, I say that because I, I just, it's all about living your life, isn't it? It's not necessarily about some big achievement or a record break or a, it's just, it's lived, living your life. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think <clears throat> over the years, there's no question I was doing it for my own benefit and I was very conscious, quite selfish. And as you all know, like the people around you, the ones who really suffer because they don't, they don't get to do it and get the best bits. Um, so I'm very conscious of it being selfish and very aware that it's good if you, if just by doing it, if that puts something positive out there, then that makes up for that. That's, you know, that's some degree of payback from it. Did you have children when, when you've done all? Nah, no, I've, I, that I, you know, I mean, I was so focused on doing that. that if I'd had kids, I wouldn't have done it. Not the North Pacific, the Atlantic and that. Yeah. But, that would have been the reason my brother didn't go. I mean, you just could not put your kids through through that six and yeah, a half months. Yeah, no, yeah. no, to- yeah. totally understand. What about what about if I got the chance to climb Everest, Mick? Right, which is probably like a lot of us adventure type people. It's always been a dream. Yeah. I know for people listening, it's a cliche mountain. I get, I get it's, it's a, it's a difficult walk. I, I get that. Right. But it's just that thing for those of us that grew up on this stuff. You, you have that, you know, it's kind of on your bucket list and I've done everything on my bucket list. So I know that Everest is a possibility, but I have a dear little boy that I wouldn't want him to go through life without his daddy, you know? Um, what advice would you give me there? I would do what instinctively you think is the right thing to do. The way I what I described about the North Pacific, the single factor about that that would prevent me doing that, or I think would prevent most people with kids, is the length of time you're away. And the, you're putting young children through six, six and a half months of every single day just the, the the biggest threat and especially for them because they'll be imagining the worst all the time and there'll be you will guarantee there are constant uh periods of time during that six and a half months when there's a, you know you've got typhoons hurricanes all the problems that come along and to do that for six and a half months at a young age is only i think gonna have negative um, connotations for your kids climb everest it's, yeah, yeah, you can lose your life doing that, but it's a relatively short time frame. They can be involved with that now because of technology to a certain degree, and it's a it's a manageable period of time for them to deal with that intensity. Um, so I I would encourage anyone to to pursue whatever they mm. see as their dreams. The North Pacific for me it was just that time that period of time, and we can see what's happening now a longer period of time of anything that's that's possibly working against the kids' best interests, it's, it's the time frame that's 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 killing and not not uh, not the actual problem. 
You know, being yeah. locked up for a few days is fine. Being locked up for three months suddenly becomes a different issue. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm the last person to discourage you from doing that, mate. So. Well, it's interesting you say because they're starting to recognise way, way, way too late now, but the effects that being a, a military child has, you know, when your parents are in the forces and you just reminded me there, my, my friend, when his dad was in the Falklands, he used to uh, watch the news. You know, he's he's he would have been ten years old, yeah. and he used to have to watch the news. And after the news, they put up the roll of the dead, the people that have been died that had died in in battle or or died on the ships that day. And these names would scroll up the screen. He's ten years old, sat there on his own to see if his dad dad died that day, yeah. right? God, I could try not to get upset thinking about it, but and then he'd just take himself up and cry in the bath, you know. Yeah. Awful. Just awful. We, you know, this is I'm I'm very anti-war now, you know, and I'm trying to get this message to my young people that it's not glamorous and it's it's very it's for the most part not necessary and and you know young no young person should have to go through what i just said it's 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 just criminal but yes so mick how was it then when you finally your your dream came true and you you did you row into san francisco oh yeah yeah it took me a little while longer i ended up having to row the atlantic again um with a guy called uh, uh andrew morris moz he um in 2005, that, like all things that you don't expect, it taught me the final lessons and the big lesson it taught me. I'm with a complete stranger. I stepped in as a last-minute replacement, and um, I, I realised I could go with somebody other than my brother, and that that would bring so much more to the party. And Chris Martin, unfortunately for him, was in that race, and I got to know him during the process, and uh, he agreed to go. So uh, we went as a double, which is... For me, that, to get into San Francisco, now I know how difficult it is, how near impossible it is. Not, you know, not getting to America, that's a different thing. Uh, I'd never have got there on my own. You know, it, it's, it's, it took two of us working beyond our you know, wildest dreams to get that boat under that bridge. Gosh. Did you have to take a lot? Was, I mean, obviously a lot more food, because I'm guessing... <laughs> Did you row both at the same time, or did you take it in shifts? Uh, we worked a system. It's kind of everybody sort of leans towards it now. We, I learned it in the first row in two thousand and one. Two on, two off. Two hours on, two hours off, round the clock. You'll know what I mean when I say split the dog, so that you're not doing the same shift. You you uh, you're doing thirteen hours one day, eleven hours the next, but you're not doing two till four every every day. Okay, yeah. Um, and you'd be surprised. We used to call the 11-hour day when you were doing the 11-hour the day, like the day off, and you'd be surprised how quickly 11 hours rowing a day starts to feel like mm. a day off instead of 13 hours rowing. Um, but we did, yeah, we had times when we had to row together. Uh, the boat was set up to do that. We had to row together to get certain, over certain, uh, well, weather issues. Um, but yeah, we, we we worked it out when we got in. We eventually it would take us 189 days, 10 hours, and 55 minutes to complete it. And in that time, we reckon maybe 12 hours or six shifts 
we didn't row when we could have. Like when we were coming out of a storm, we left it a couple of hours later than we could have, or we went in a couple of hours ahead of a storm. Um, that's how religious we were, six shifts in six and a half months at sea. When you're making your dream come true, it does that to you, doesn't it? You, you, you just you motivate you. You know you 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 see that this is happening. I'm my goal is coming true, and you you you. I, I mean, every adventurer, whether they've skied to the pole or you know across the Antarctic, whatever they've had to do, what you're talking about, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I is passion. If you're passionate about something, what that means is it's that's quite a emotive word and people dismiss it. But all passion means is you've got an unlimited supply of energy to achieve that goal. If you're not passionate about it, there'll be a cutoff. But if you're passionate about that, you're going to the you know beyond the limit. Mm. And that's what you know, that's why it's important to, you know, introduce people to things that they're passionate about, whatever they are, not necessarily around the Pacific. But we were passionate about that and we found that level of, you know, that fuel tank that never ran completely empty because we were passionate about what we were trying to do. Not just me, Chris as well. Mm. You're going to find the way, aren't you? You're going to work through every problem. You're going to think, yeah. right, challenge here, how to get over it and just keep going. And that it, it, I guess it's why it's so hard when, like when you capsized, well, you you sound like you dealt with it very prag pragmatically in your head, but I mean that's a big old thing. All those well years of planning and and effort and training. How the finance, Mick? How how have you raised the finance for your trips? Uh, when I started, I owned two houses, and now I rent. <laughs> so um, I've been lucky in some parts, some sponsorship. Certainly, the North Pacific when we were successful, uh, we. we I think I got over 60% of the project sponsored and that was the most successful, but I didn't do it to get rich. It'd be nice if I did as well, but uh, um, there's different ways of being rich. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the payback's been, outweighs the, the, the costs. But um, if you're going to go and do something like that, the first thing you've got to do if, if you're asking for sponsorship and support is demonstrate that you're prepared to put your money behind it as well. So I always have. Mm amazing and what kind of reception did you get when you rode into san francisco uh it's fantastic um we arrived early in the morning i mean we, it was friday the 13th of november believe it or not and uh we got in and uh i mean just seeing the bridge after all those years of me trying to do it you know this was five years after the first or six years after the first attempt um, and then the boat started to come out. So it was about 8.35 in the morning, I think, when we finally got under the bridge. There's helicopters down above us. Um, we got under the bridge. We had this huge, they were throwing beer at us from various boats, most of it missing us, before we uh, we got some on board, our first beer. And then we got into the, um, uh, the yacht club, um, and Gavin Newsom was there, who then was the governor. Uh, now he's, I think he's a, he might be a senator now, but he's on the news now, Gavin Newsom. And uh, he'd come to see us. I didn't know who he was. I stepped off the boat and it was literally the, the pontoons were underwater. There were so many people. And uh, my mum was there and I said, excuse me, mate, I've got to get to my mum. It was uh, the, um, 
he, sorry, he was the mayor of San Francisco, then he's the governor now. And he, he, he parted the way so I could get to be mum and, uh, and uh, give her a hug. Amazing. Just amazing. One thing I wanted to ask you before we say our goodbyes is, have you ever read this absolute classic, The Epic Voyage of the Seven Little Sisters? I haven't, no. You can tell by the state of this book, it's really hard to get hold of. I paid, probably paid 50 quid for this on Amazon or something. It's by a guy called William Willis. And talk about brave, talk about eccentric. (laughs) He built himself all kinds of rafts, a bit like your your sort of Contiki expedition and, and this kind of stuff. And he's been across all the world's oceans. He floated all the way across the Pacific. Then ended up in Australia. He's built balsa wood rafts, like the traditional kind of um, Polynesian style one, or is it South American style one? He's built me- metal metal rafts using, I guess, plastic, but you know, um, plastic buoyancy. And he he hopped aboard these craft on his own with a cat and a parrot. (laughs) He had a bag of food hanging up. That's the only food. It was something, something weird like rice. That that that. And he practiced all this kind of breathing technique that kept him healthy. Just incredible. Um, William Willis. The epic voyage of the seven little sisters. When was he doing that? What what decade? Uh, this is published. Let me see when it was published. This was in this edition issued in 1957. So I guess it's around about the Second World War. Yeah. War time. Uh, um, but yeah, just. Incredible. I'll see if I can find a picture here. That that there you go. Look, there's his his cat <laughs> and his but parrot. The parrot wasn't very happy about the cat. <laughs> well, after one storm, the parrot, the parrot. disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, and that he's just got his strides and his shirt on. He's not, you know, no, no proper equipment or anything. Not, not sponsored by Ali Hansen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just amazing. And I love that. I, my, one of my favourite books of all times, Contiki Expedition. Yeah. Um, Adrift by Stephen Callahan, 76 Days in a Life Raft, is an amazing book. And it was the inspiration behind my first um novel in my navy seal series where my protagonist ends up in a life raft i wasn't copying folks i just <laughs> I, I love this kind of maritime survival story i really wanted to incorporate that into to my book but yeah it's um it's a am- yeah what an amazing story you have you're you do public speaking yeah yeah yeah, I do speak a, a lot at various uh, various corporations and uh, organisations. How how can people book you for that? Uh, the easiest way to contact me is through the website, which is uh, www.189 
phasedays.com. Okay. And come from by that. And you you have a LinkedIn profile. I'll I'll put that below the um below the the YouTube video. Do you have yep. any other social media? Uh yeah, I think I'm I'm on Facebook uh for my personally and also on my uh, uh the book uh, or, or the author side of things. What are your book, author? What are your books called? Uh, the first book, which is basically the story of the rowing up to the successful 2009 crossing, is called um, Rowing the Pacific in the UK. Same story is called Battling the Oceans in a Rowboat in America, because they have a different dialogue. And the new book, which has just come out on ebook form, but has been delayed till July 23rd for print, is um, actually one of the few copies available now is never leave a man behind and that's really the story from 2009 and the stuff that i've done with recovering vets for an organization that i've set up called cockle shell endeavor and ultimately that that leads to the 2018 return to the pacific and rowing to hawaii with uh, my mate steve sparks who's a blind veteran wow do you want to tell us a bit more about that organization it sounds like it does some amazing work yeah, well, yeah, it's sort of, again, like all, all good things that happened to you, it happened by mistake, really. But um, I ended up going back to the Falklands for with my mate, who's 50, if it was. I arranged the flights back because it was subsidised. We could go cheap with the RAF. Long story short, we went around all the things that were significant to us. He was in 4-2 Commando. He went to Harriet, Mark Harriet, where he fought as a, just a few months older than me, 18-year-old. And at the top of Harriet, by the White Cross that's there for the guys killed, he said um, he'd been looking for assistance. His, his family had made him look for assistance because they thought he was, you know, he was struggling with PTSD, basically. Um, the charity he went to said he ticked all the boxes apart from suicide, which he wouldn't admit to, or suicidal inclination. And then they said, go away for three months, no drugs or alcohol, and we will diagnose you officially. Standing at the top of area, he said, if I could do that, Mick, I wouldn't need the rope, would I? Um, I was pretty disgusted, if I'm honest, that that was the reaction he got, because that was basically the door shutting in his face, and he wouldn't ask for help again. And uh, I said, we'll, we'll create something to get you through three months, mate. And he went, well, what? So I was standing on the top of Harriet in the Falklands. I said, I know, we'll hike around the Falklands. How hard could that be? <laughs> really hard. Um, and long story short, we started to learn to kayak from the minute we got back. Novice kayakers, we took part in the devices to Westminster, the Yukon Great River Quest, and in 2017, went back to the Falklands. We reduced the ambition a little, got into a klepper, and we did a 10-day expedition around East Falkland with most importantly when most of the fighting was done uh to complete that project and that that was the cockle shell endeavor to get me mate back on track steve grenham um and then it sort of evolved we've helped all the guys in smaller ways in kayaking expeditions and stuff and then me and steve sparks went and rode across the pacific from california to hawaii for a for a troubled gosh the cockle shell for people listening is it's um it, is that the nickname of the Klepper canoe? I mean, obviously, Cockleshell Heroes. The Klepper is the canoe that the SBSU that have traditionally used. Um, yeah, it's it, it, Cockles was the names for the boats with the, that were used in the uh, 
Cockle Shell Heroes, the raid mm. on, in Bordeaux. Um, so, yeah, the boats were called Cockles and they become the Cockle Shell Heroes. And your book, the title, Never Leave a Man Behind, what is never more appropriate? Well, yeah, Steve Sparks was literally abandoned when he lost his sight. It's quite disgusting what happened to him. Um, I don't say that as a criticism for, for the Royal Marines because, quite frankly, it's not the Royal Marines' job to look after recovering veterans. It's a system that, you know, puts people in that position. And the system in the 80s let him down dreadfully. He, he literally was medically discharged without any assistance at all for 10 years. And that's why we did it. We said, like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go and do this and make sure it's better now than it's ever been. The You know, the, the, the things in place to help uh, guys that, that need it is, is better than it's ever been, but it still needs to be better. So mm. it's a, his story and the fact that he's overcome it and, uh, and the successful road to, to Hawaii, hopefully just reminds people you can't forget people. If people need uh, support, um, lifetime support, simple as that. Just briefly, because I'm conscious, I don't want to go on for um, for too long, because people see the the time on YouTube and go, "I haven't got time for that," which is a real shame, <laughs> it's a massive shame, because everyone should listen to this. But what were the sorts of challenges with somebody who's visually impaired? What what kind of challenges in a rowing boat did that throw up for you? Um, for well, for the both of you. Well, Sparky was incredible. I mean, he was an exceptional Royal Marine when he was in. He's a King's Badgeman. Um, he's distinguished himself in the Falklands. Um, so he's a remarkable individual, which is why I knew he could do it. He couldn't actually row, which is a bit of a setback. But but why we looked at it was, um, and this was brought up early on, was that, well, he's blind. How is he going to cope? And I said, well, this is a race. I can guarantee on the other boats there are people that would, you know, He'll have a hundred qualities that those people will be crying out for that they haven't got. He has one thing that he's limited by. So we'll make up for that as a team. Um, and I, you know, I knew as a former bootneck team that we could do that. So we never looked at it that we were making up for his disability. We just adjusted the team dynamic so that we'd function as a team and allow for it. And uh, that's what we did. I mean, we had a, it's a difficult crossing. The weather was dreadful. Um, you'll like, I'll, I'll tell you one story before I go, which I think sums Sparky up and sums how difficult the trip was. Because when we got within three days of Hawaii, by that stage, Sparky had got a compression fracture across his shoulder that had literally crippled him for about three weeks. It was 79 days into the row. It had been freezing cold most of that time, believe it or not, on that route. And we then found out that only the second Category 5 hurricane in history was about to hit Hawaii. And I had to go and tell Sparky that. And uh, I told him the day before it wasn't because it changed direction in the meantime. And I went out after the about that hurricane, Sparky. And he sat at the front, huddled in uh, anti-foul gear at the time. It's still that cold. He said, yeah. I said, it's not going to miss us now. It's going to run us over. And it's gone up to a cap five. And he went, shit. He said, so what's the score? I said, well, we either, we've got two choices. We stay and we ride it out or we get off now. Before, before it hits. And I said, do you want to get off? And he went, Gotta, come on and get off. And I'm like, understandably. And he said, but I'm not going to, am I? But you're not going to. He said, I'm not going to let you and everybody else down now. Um, and I often say this when I'm talking about teamwork. When a blind man crippled by injury with the Pat 5 hurricane rolling towards him tells you he's not going to let you down, if that doesn't bring the best out in you, then nothing will. 
And as soon as he'd said that, and I said, right, we'll put the parachute anchor in and ride it out. He said, it's all right, Mick, anyway. He said, I've been for Oricon before. I'm like, really? He went, yeah, when I was in the Corps in 84, um, on HMS Hermes on the Atlantic. I'm like, mate, HMS Hermes is an, an aircraft carrier. We're on a seven-meter rowing boat. <laughs> so uh, that probably gives you an indication of the type of person Sparky is and uh, his approach to dealing with problems. Amazing. And the Cockershell Endeavour is so. Is that kind of a fixed charity now, or was it's it? It's not. No, I've I've sort of uh, I'm hooked up uh, with James Bachelor, who, who runs a, a Royal Range Kayaking Association. He sort of uh, he runs um, events with the boats that we raise money to to purchase for, for recovering veterans, you know, on a smaller scale. And I've kind of built projects onto it, but never been in a position to really set it up as an independent ongoing project. I'm still trying to do that, but COVID has completely put the kibosh on that for the foreseeable. So, yeah, the plan is, all things being equal, to set it up as an ongoing resource. Quite what level that will be at, I don't know. That will be post-COVID decision-making because, you know, funding is a key issue. Yeah. Um, but something will be something will continue to happen under the Cockle Child Endeavour uh, badge. Brilliant. Mick, you've been an absolute legend, brother. Thank you. In, in just in every respect, what an amazing story. I feel privileged to just, uh, well, to know you and to, and to hear it. Thank you so much. I'll put all your links below the video. Um, if you th there's ever a spare seat in your boat for me, <laughs> the Atlantic, not the, uh, my little boy wouldn't want me to be that gone that long for the Pacific, but, but please count. Count me enjoy, in. I'd enjoy that race to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> I'd enjoy being getting to Hawaii. I know, I know yeah. that. <laughs> so it's that bit you have to do in the middle that I. <laughs> <laughs> so cheers for cheers for the invite, mate. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. And for our friends at home, thanks for watching another edition of the Bought the T-shirt podcast. Please, if you could subscribe. Um, and chuck us a like, that will help the channel, and uh, see you soon. Cheers, mate. Take care. Cheers, mate. See you again. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.